Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you that you reveal yourself to be a God who is just and holy, but also loving. And we pray that you'll equip us, you'll speak to us this morning, and equip us to be able to answer um, uh, uh, the questions that people have about hell. And Lord, we pray that you'll also speak to us and move us uh, with your character, with who you are, that we would be awed by, by you and what you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the first day of opening of a new store, and this guy went to this new location that he was opening up. He opened the shutters, and he was waiting for the customers to arrive. But the first thing that arrived to the shop were flowers, flowers with a note. And the note said, rest in peace. It wasn't a good sign. It was a opening up a new store, right? And so he called the florist and said, you made a mistake. Uh, this, is a, a, this is bad omen. This is bad sign. And the lady in the flower shop responded, oh, I'm very sorry, sir, but imagine somewhere in the city there is a funeral and they have flowers that says, congratulations on your new location. It's one of the questions that people ask at some point in their lives, isn't it? Where do we go after death? Where is the new location after death? And at a funeral, even the people who are not Christian, even people who don't particularly believe in anything, believe that their loved one is going to heaven, that they're in a better place, that they are resting in peace. It seems that hell has disappeared from public conversations. Some people think that that's just an outdated way of thinking about heaven and hell, right? When Gagarin became the first man to travel to space in 1961, uh, then the president of the Soviet Union, Khrushchev, said, Gagarin flew into space, but he didn't see any God there. Well, if God is not in heaven, then there's no hell here on earth either. But hell has been a problem for Christians as well. People have wanted to erase hell. One of the very first uh, early Christians, theologian Origen, believed that somehow God will uh, save everyone, that hell's fire would be extinguished. In 2011, you might have heard that Rob Bell published a book called Love Wins, in which he had hoped that eventually God's love would win over every soul that hell would be not necessary. But even those who believe in hell, who want to be faithful to Jesus' teaching or the Bible's teaching, we're often embarrassed by hell. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to, uh, 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 we, we want to avoid it. So what's the problem with hell? 
Is it really an outdated belief? And one reason that we think that it's outdated is because the culture in which we live thinks that loving means not judging. And if God is loving, how can he judge? How can he send anyone to hell? Supportive parents, loving friends means that they're supposed to be there for you no matter what you're doing, whether it's harming you or not. They're supposed to just be there for you and not judge you in any way. And if God is love, well, he's supposed to be there, to be there for you, to support you, to be patient with you and be there for you. How could he judge? But if, how, is any of that right? I mean, first, how do people know that God is loving, right? How do people get this idea that God is a loving God? I'm not saying that he's not, but if you look at the world, if you look at nature, it's not that clear. The nature is about survival of the fittest. Animals competing for food, strong, destroying the weak. I had a hamster once that we, uh, I kind of neglected to feed. It ate its young. You know, if you look at the nature, you don't get the idea that God is this loving God. And you don't get this idea from other religions either. Look at Hinduism or Islam or uh, Buddhism or Confucianism. No religion says, no other religion says, God has, wants to have this personal relationship with you. <clears throat> that God is loving God who would die for you. No other religion says that. How do people know that God is loving? Where did this idea come from? Well, it's because the Bible tells us that God is love. 1 John 4, 8, for centuries in the West and where the West has gone, this idea has gone out as well. It's the, the Bible that has shaped people's thinking that God is love. If you believe in God of love, it's because, because your worldview has been shaped by the Scripture, by the Bible itself. But then, if this is true, I want to say, read further. Because there's more in the Bible. The Bible doesn't just say that God is love. It also says God is holy, that he is just. It also tells us that God has this settled hatred against sin, that people who are sinners will be consumed by God's holiness as we approach near, uh, near to him. It tells us that he will come to judge the living and the dead. We can't pick and choose the parts that we like about God from the Bible. We need to hear and listen to all of his word. But also, contrary to what people believe, loving entails being angry sometimes. It loving, loving leads to God's righteous judgment as well. If you don't believe that, think about how you react to the things that you love, people that you love. How would Mary react if Mary lovingly baked a cake for me for my birthday or something? And I took this cake and I threw it against the wall and I started laughing at her. How would she react? It's only right that she would get angry. How do you react to people and things that you love? If your children started selling drugs, started harming, harming themselves, how would you feel? Uh, Becky Pippert uh, put it this way, anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. The final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to cancer. God gets angry at our sins because he loves the world that he's created. 
He thinks it's good. He loves it. He, lo- he gets angry at us when we sin because he has created us and he loves each one of us and he sees us doing all these things and he gets angry at our sin and he wants to do something about that. And you know what? We long for God to judge. We do. Even if you don't realize it, we long for God to come and bring his justice to the world. That's why the psalmist, many times in Psalm 96 or other places, uh, praises God who judges. This is how Psalm 96 ends. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Well, why does he rejoice? Well, he, he rejoices in God's judgment. He longs for God's judgment to come because his world is filled with evil. And he wants God to end evilness. He wants to judge the wicked people around him. And when we see evil things around the world, we also long for that kind of judgment. Don't we say, don't we pray that God will end the suffering and war in Syria? ISIS to end. The corrupt politicians, greedy people who are getting rich off of people's back, poor people's back. People who have cheated us. Don't we long for these things to end? We long for God's justice. And we will delight in it when it comes. And without that promise of final judgment, actually, things would get much worse. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian at Yale. Having seen his country, Croatia, being torn apart by civil war, he writes in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, violence thrives secretly nourished by the belief in a God who refused to wield the sword. You see what he's saying? There is, if there's no ultimate justice, if God refuses to wield his sword, then what will happen? Well, people will, will wield it themselves. One wrong is done, and it's fought with another wrong, and that's fought with another wrong, and it'll go on and on and on. He goes on to say, one could further argue that in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. God who does not judge evil is not God, a God that's worthy of our worship. This is what we will say if there's no ultimate justice And the idea that God does not or would not respond to human evil and wickedness, he says, born out of comforts of a middle-class life, a suburban life, he says, uh, of, of experiencing no real evil in our lives. How could a loving God judge? How could he not if he loves, if he loves the world, if he loves each one of us? But you might say, well, okay, I'm fine with God judging. That that seems necessary. But most of the people that I know are decent people, are good people. And if, but, but hell seems just out of proportion to what uh, people have done. It's not what we deserve. And I can sympathize with that, especially knowing what the Bible says about hell. Because hell is not a pretty place. And the description doesn't come from the Old Testament. It doesn't actually come from Apostle Paul who gets the blame for many things. It comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who talks most about hell than any other people in the Bible. In fact, Old Testament hardly talks about it. In the short passage that we read, Jesus warned us not to be afraid of those who can kill us. 
but be afraid of the one who can send us to hell. And this is not a small thing. Think about that. The people that Jesus is talking to, um, they're being beheaded. Uh, they're being sawed in half. Some are being fed to lions. Some are being crucified. And God, Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of the ones who can put you in that situation, but be afraid of God who can put you into hell because that is much worse. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? When he says it's better to cut off a limb of your body and gouge out your eyes than for your whole body to be thrown into the fires of hell. The parable of the wicked servants end with the warning. This is Matthew chapter 24, 25. He will cut him to pieces and assign him, in a, assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you have your Bibles, look to Matthew 25. There are parables there. Each one of them ends with warning, page 806 in the church Bibles. Those who didn't use their talents for Christ will be thrown outside, verse 30, into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the judgment comes, God will separate the sheep and the goats, verse 41 of chapter 25. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, verse 46, and they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. You've also heard the book of Revelation's description of hell, a place where people will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of his holy angel and of the Lamb, on a place where there's no rest day or night. Hell is a place of eternal punishment, destruction, banishment, and suffering. And although fire is metaphorical, it's metaphorical for things that it's much worse Right? It's just as bad as pain that we would face being burnt. So most people think, well, I don't belong to such a place. The people that I know don't belong to such a place. Eternal punishment, fire and brimstone. We don't even send our worst criminals here on earth to a place like that. How can a just and loving God send anyone to hell? My colleagues, my friends, my neighbors... My grandmother, who passed away without knowing Jesus. And these are really hard questions. And it's, it just it weighs on my heart. And I take comfort in the fact that actually the one who will come to judge us is Jesus Christ himself. He will be the, on the throne and he will judge us. The one who died for us, one who loves us, one who has shown himself to be righteous and just and kind. He is our judge. And we know we can be sure that he will judge fairly and justly. But if we're tacking on the question head on, is it really out of proportion, this punishment in hell? Well, I want to say, how do we know? How do we know that we don't, how do we know what we actually deserve? Isn't it a bit presumptuous for the guilty criminal to tell the judge how the trial should go. We don't do this in the human court, right? You, you, we don't say to the criminal, what do you think you deserve? Because that's what we'll give you. That's not what we say in human court. Could we do that in God's court? And after all, God is the judge who knows all things, all situations, and from his perspective, our sins might look very different. Our little sins are often much bigger than what we think that they are. Think, for example, in the Bible, story of Jacob. Jacob favored Joseph. 
his favorite son, born to his favorite wife. Well, that seems like a small thing. Well, what ends up happening is it incites his jealousy amongst the brothers. It ends up uh, uh, being that Joseph then is sold into slavery. He spends year, years in prison, all because Joseph favored, I mean, Jacob favored Joseph. Think, for example, also of David and Bathsheba. It was one adultery, you might say. But it ends up splitting a whole country. It ends up having this uh, result that's much bigger than he thought. We use more plastic than we need to. That's a matter of convenience. We know that we should take care of God's creation, but it's convenient to use all these things. Well, what happens? Devastation, right? The, The ocean being filled with garbage, animal world suffering, the world groaning in pain. My point is that God's, from God's perspective, our sins might look very different than what we think they are. We don't have all the information, and God does, and He is the just judge. He believes that our sins do deserve grave punishment. And one aspect that we don't think about is what sin means to God. We ought to be reminded what sin is at its core. It's not just something that we do against the world or against other people. Sin is an active rebellion against God. And I mentioned David's adultery in that famous Psalm 51, and when he confesses his sins, he says, Against you only have I sinned. Wait, but he's killed Uriah. <laughs> he's sinned against other people too. Why does he say, against you, God, only have I sinned? Well, he's getting something. He's getting to something that is important about nature of our sin. On some level, every sin is a sin against God. It's a rebellion against God. God has created us in God's image, and we know what's right and wrong. What we, 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 we think that this, we, this is not something that we should do, but we do it anyway. We do it not out of ignorance, but out of active rebellion against God. That's the reason why all humanity deserves God's righteous anger. The infinite penalty is just punishment for sin against the infinite holiness of God. And you know what this also means? Each of us who's created, who's, who's created in God's image is endowed with the ability to please God. This infinite God who is bigger than anything that we know, we're able to please God. But the flip side of that is that we are also able to incur God's infinite anger. That's the responsibility and the dignity that God has given to each one of us as he's, he has created us in God's image. But still, you might say, that eternal, eternity is a long time. And why doesn't just God rescue them or something in the end? And to this I want to say, friends, don't picture hell full of people who are penitent, people who are remorseful and regretting what they have done. If you have your Bibles, turn to page 1000, Revelations chapter 16, verse 10. Revelation chapter 16, verse 10, on page 1,000 of our church Bibles. What we see there is God's wrath being poured out. But look at how people are reacting. Instead of turning to God, we read, People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heavens because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent for what they had done. They're being punished 
but they do not repent. While swallowing their tongues in agony, they curse God. It's hard for us to imagine, but that's what's going on in hell. How could that be? Well, it seems that just as those who trust in Jesus will undergo a transformation of our bodies in which that's fit for the new creation, that will not sin anymore, but will want to glorify God forever and ever, just as that, the people who end up in hell, it seems, they go through a transformation. And we see a measure of that in Romans chapter 1. If you know your Bibles, you know how in Romans chapter 1, God says God gives them over in his wrath. God gives them over to their sinful desires. God doesn't stop them from getting, doing bad things. He just lets them be. He just lets them be to their sinful nature. And imagine that, God doing that once and for all leaving people to their sinful natures and removing his goodness from it, from them. The sin will corrupt them and enslave them, and in their agony, they will curse God. This is why the famous parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 6, 16, remember that, that, that story? That the, 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 the man, the Lazarus has a name, but the rich man does not have a name. And people have noted that, and people have said, uh, the commentators have said, that's because he's known as the rich man, right? He doesn't have a name. He doesn't have an identity of his own anymore. What defines him was the idol that he served, richness. And that's all he is, and he's just a shell of a human being. And in hell, as God removes himself, we will be transformed into people who curse God in our agony. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God or, to, uh, or those to whom in the end says, thy will be done. God will say, I'll let you be where you are. Is hell out of proportion? Well, God is a righteous judge. The one who knows the gravity of our sins and our sins are an offense against this infinite holy God. And people in hell will continue to curse God, which is why that hell goes to eternity. And I say all of this with a very heavy heart. I wouldn't want anyone to go to hell. I, just, I don't even like thinking about it. This is why we don't preach about it all that often, right? But friends, hell also reveals God's glory. It shows that God is faithful to his word, to his nature, he will uphold his righteous standards. He will show himself to be a just God. And the day of judgment comes for a reason. In Revelation chapter 20, verse four, verses 14 to 15, we read that God will throw anyone whose name is not found in the book of life into the lake of, Eter lake of fire. But it doesn't end there, does it? Right? Look what it brings in. It goes on to say, Revelation chapter 21, 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. There's no more chaos. There's no more evil in that world. I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride, beautifully bri uh, bride beautifully dressed for her husband. You see, those who accept Christ's rule, will, who refuse to accept Christ's rule, will be thrown out. And the reason for that is so that the new creation will not be marred and soiled by our sin. 
by people's sin again. So they will be thrown out so we can enjoy God's glory and this new creation forever and ever. And think about that. Friends, if you trust in Jesus, you will enjoy the glories of the new creation forever and ever. And do you think living in the new creation forever and ever, you will stand there and think, actually, I deserve all of this. I deserve all this goodness that God is giving me because I have been so good in my past life. Do you think you'll say that? I don't think so. There has only been one good person in the history of humanity, and his name was Jesus. But on the Mount of Gethsemane, remember, Jesus was deeply distressed, troubled his the sweat turned into blood as he, as, as he faced, um, as he thought about drinking the cup of God's wrath. And on the cross, the Son of God cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was destroyed, banished, punished for us. We often question the justice of hell, but what's truly incomprehensible is grace. Why people like you and I, who continue to rebel against God, who continue to offend God again and again, knowingly and willingly, knowing God's grace in Jesus Christ, who treat others and God with such contempt, we will be with God forever and ever, receiving what His Son, Jesus Christ, deserves forever and ever, enjoying His blessings those who go to hell, in a sense, won't end up there because they have sinned. Because all have sinned, in the words of Dr. Wolf, it will be because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. And if you're not yet a Christian, would you come to the open arms of the crucified Messiah? Would you ask his forgiveness and turn to him as your Lord? And if you're a Christian, friends, don't be embarrassed of hell being an outdated belief. It's not something that we should go on and on and on about because it should bring sadness in our hearts, right? It's, it, whenever we talk about it, it sh we should talk about it with tears in our eyes. But this doctrine of hell does reveal that God is just, that God is holy, and it gives a sense of urgency to our preaching and to our evangelism. It promises also a world without sin and sinful people. And it shows us that God cares. God cares for each one of us and the extent to which that He went to save us and bring us to Himself in His great love. Let's pray. Lord, help us to fear you. Lord, forgive us for taking sin so lightly, for ta taking eternity lightly. Forgive us for taking the sacrifice, sacrifice of your Son lightly. Forgive us for taking your holiness and your justice and your love lightly.
Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who went to hell for us, that we might live a life of eternity and we might live a life of blessings. And Lord, may we respond um, to that grace uh, in praise and in worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.